Hello, March Mad Men listeners. Let's rejoin our analysis of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 already in progress. Enjoy. I'm watching her like ever so slowly move the corpse of the driver back. You know, now she's like, I'm going to take some action, maybe get the wheel, peek out the driver's side window because Leatherface has disappeared for a while. I mean, I guess this is a mistake, probably. Well, she can't. I think the other door wasn't opening. Right. So this is her only way out. But she does. You know what she does? And I noticed this the last time I watched it. She sticks her head all the way out and then she looks around. And then, but he's out the other window. He's at the window she had, yeah. like was sitting next to before. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it, it doesn't end well for her and it's, it's very visceral and believable, you know, like he just very slowly is wrestling with her. Um, and the knife, you know, gets closer and closer to her stomach and then, you know, sort of samurai style goes across her belly. This is a good, I mean, I agree. This is a, a, a well done death. It's a little tear that falls down right as she I dying. love that. I love that. That's um, such a nice touch, the tear going down, the single tear going down her cheek. Yeah. But I found myself watching this thinking of the Furies. Oh, oh here's yeah. the shot. Yeah, there's the shot. Yeah, he, he, it's only, it's so brief. It's so brief. It's too brief. It's yeah. too brief. I feel like they must not have shot it long enough. Or I don't know if something happened that they couldn't use more of it. I don't think they the knew. They didn't know what they, everywhere. they didn't know what they had. I still shot. can't believe they couldn't they couldn't put another just another three seconds of it up because it's so brilliant. I agree. Um, yeah. But anyways, that that death scene and ooh, what are you what are you popping up in there? Oh, um, it is uh, it's worthy of note. It's actually a Trader Joe's special that uh, Kim, God bless her, found for me, and she bought all of them for me. Once she knew that I I liked them, she bought them out at the store because you know, they, they, they don't, they <laughs> stop stocking these things. Yeah. But it's called the lounging iguanas, hazy IPA. It's a pina colada, India pale ale, pineapple and coconut. And nice. I love pineapple and coconut. It's an Abita beer. And Oh my God, it's mm-hmm. delicious. It combines like Hawaii goodness with IPA. And I'm so glad that I have at least a month's supply. <laughs> Nice. I know Abita. I think that's a New Orleans brewery. So uh, what I was what I was going to say, just to wrap up my thought before we get on to yeah. uh, more nonsense about the deed, is that I feel like those kind of deaths where she's like resting him and he's got this piece of glass or knife or whatever that he's going to cut her open with. Now that that death scene from the Furies is like the scene against which all versions of that death are measured. And most are found wanting. <laughs> yes. Like, well, this was good. It was gruesome and it was believable. But I, I still, like, I, I just didn't cringe and pull away from the screen like I did with the axe to the face in the Furies. Yes. Like, if the axe to the face was from the Furies was in this movie, I, I think it would get a lot more appreciation than it did in, yeah. in that sadly obscure film. But that, yeah, deserves more. Uh, we're doing what we can, John. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, we do what we can. You know, like yeah. Lake Mungo, the Furies, uh, you know, we try to draw attention to some of the less lesser known stuff. So we're on to Sally Hardesty 
in this film, who I believe is brilliant casting. Yeah, this woman does look like Marilyn Burns 40-some years later. But I think that the character mostly goes nowhere in the film. Yeah. And we'll get to that, but. Agreed. We can, we should, we should jump back and point out that. So yes, Richter, uh, upon everyone hearing that, uh, Alice Creech died, Richter has taken the keys from the bus and told Dante that he will not give them back until he gets proof that they have the deed to her orphanage, which is, Dumb. Yeah, that's nonsensical. Like, yeah. so um, I'm going to punish you by stranding you here for reasons that would make no sense unless we wanted you to be stranded here so that a killer could murder you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but what it does is motivate them because Dante can't find the deed. So it motivates them to go and explore the orphanage to yes. see if they can find her copy of the deed, which... Again, also struck me as like, I don't know, this is like a really big, I don't know. It just seems like it could take you a week to find a single piece of paper yeah. in <laughs> in this building. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, what are they going to do? Like, they're going to go back to go back to him and say, oh, we couldn't find it. Right. Like, isn't that the the best case scenario to get their keys back? So are they just going to make a show of searching for it? I know Melody is motivated, but it, 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 it it is somewhat ludicrous to, you know, to, to to frame this as they don't want to find it. So how are they going to prove it doesn't exist that it's not there? Well, that is, so one of the real weaknesses in this movie to me, and I've talked about this, not just in the in this season, but in the Haunted House season especially, it's one of the more ludicrous things that they do to isolate the characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, they're here, they have a bus. I mean, this is Mike's theory of, uh, of, of horror films, is that we are now, you know, what, 30, 40, 30 minutes into the film, and our lead characters have no idea that anything's wrong. Right. So how do we keep them? What, what are we going to do when they figure it out? How do we keep them from just getting in the bus and driving out of town? Yes. And this is the convoluted way that they, they do that. And again, yeah. like she opens a little ha- uh, a little chest and finds it. But apparently Alice Creech did not just know that that's where it was and say, give me a minute. I'll be right back. Right. Yeah. Just go upstairs, open that box right there on her vanity. It's not a large house, you know, like yeah. it's not that it, it wasn't tucked in the pages of a book or something. And she didn't remember what book it was hidden in or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was right there in a, in a, a logical place. And the, and we mean to the police, right. Who clearly yeah. know her and have been talking to her for weeks. You know, you just say, hey, I'll be, I'll be back in a minute. So, yeah, I like I said, that stuff. Now, to be fair, in, uh, I'm a little forgiving on this stuff sometimes because it's hard. Yes. It's really hard to figure out how to keep somebody in a place. That's another great shot, by the way. We just got Dante in the kitchen, sees mm. Leatherface reflected back in the back of a pan. And the swinging door is uh, yeah. evocative of the sliding door in the first film. Very uh, much so, yes. 
Yeah, and it's it's a wonderfully shot thing where he uses a cleaver uh, on Dante, but mostly off screen, and then Dante staggers back through that swinging door and collapses on the floor, uh, bleeding out and gurgling. It's uh, yeah, it's a really cool sequence. Exactly. So now we've hit the the Mike's second plot point of a soldier film. Right. Once we become aware of the killer. Yeah. We become um, aware of the killer. And she hides in, in true Halloween and David Gordon Green fashion inside of a, a closet with slotted doors. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this poor girl goes through so much. Like, she's more than punished for her small transgressions at the beginning of the film. It is. I'd be curious to see. I feel like we've seen through this process so many instances of people hiding under doors, hiding in closets, hiding under beds, like hiding and just kind of holding their breath while the killer is right next to them. Some of them are better done than others, but I haven't really done like a, a sort of a shot by shot analysis. Like, I don't know why some of them work better than others. But yeah. it is, it's definitely a trope of the genre. I can't think of any that are, like, you know, noticeably poor. I mean, I guess some are forgettable or not especially striking. Memorable, yeah. Right, but it's, it's you know, it, it has its place, and, and some are more effective than others. And this one is, like, where she's watching him put makeup Leatherface put makeup on on his surrogate mother's skin mask on his face, and you know, kind of it's it's horrible, but it also is a beat that connects him to his emotional side, his human side, uh, yeah. and the trauma of loss that this character is experiencing. I did. I I just want to say too, before we get too far from it, the uh, the the instance of the character hiding somewhere while the killer's outside that stands out to me is Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, mm-hmm. when she she pees, and mm-hmm. it leaks out from under the bed, and that's how Jason spots her. Is that am I remembering that correctly? I is think so. Yeah, 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 I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a good, a good instance of that. I think a good a good usage of that. I guess. Oh yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I love that movie's, like, again, I, I've said it, it, it sets a lot of the template uh, out there for other films to, to follow. So a rainstorm um, erupts here in this little West Texas town, and everyone in the party bus is seeking shelter, and Melody cannot get their attention, and she hides under the bed again as Leatherface returns with a big old hammer because he knows where the chainsaw is hidden it's behind the wall and he starts slamming away at it and i i heard this shot criticized because it's the shining where you follow the swinging weapon back and forth it's become a cliche didn't really i didn't notice that no the shining is very specific in terms of like the camera placement and how it's done i'm more i mean this, I think, fills in some of those gaps of, you know, w- when Leatherface showed up at this orphanage, he clearly brought his chainsaw. And mm-hmm. so Alice Creech clearly knew something about what he had done because she made a point of hiding it in, a, right. in a really difficult to find place. 
Yes. Like, I think she saw him as worthy of redemption while being aware that he had dark secrets that needed to be kept. That's a really good point. I hadn't actually thought that through. So we introduced the party bus, which is, of course, the pinnacle of the film, uh, where we have a racially diverse crew of jackasses, I think it's safe to say. (laughs) Stereotypical jackasses. Let's say that. Yes. These people might be decent, fine people. Right. Uh, but the, the, well, and actually, I feel like they do a good job. I, I don't remember the, the, the bank representative's name, but she mm-hmm. has kind of a nice. Catherine. Oh, yes. She has she has a nice vibe to her mm-hmm. that she sort of stands out from the jackasses. There's a critical oh. moment where Dante is found by Richter and he, you know, shows a lot of even before he knows how fucked up the guy is, Richter's like, hey, are you all right, man? You know, like, he gets past his issues immediately well, but when he sees him staggering. But the, no, but the first thing he says to him is, hey, I'm talking to you, which I found sort of interesting. Yeah. He, 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 he starts off sort of aggressively and then quickly flips it when he realizes that something's wrong. That he's in trouble. Yeah, which I think is great. Yeah. I mean, I think that's... Uh-huh. It's not, you know, like overly oh, this guy's such a hero. You know, like you get, it just feels more real. That Yeah. Yeah, he's a standoffish, but then when, sh- you know, when push comes to shove, he's okay. He's a decent guy. Yeah. And now the, the, now that the shit has hit the fan, he has established himself as, okay, I'm going to take charge. He pulls out his gun, he sends everyone back to the bus, and he's going to go check out the orphanage and see what happened to Dante. Now, he should have given them the fucking keys so they could leave. (laughs) In in retrospect, yes, John. Um, But I would also wonder, did he know Leatherface? Like, does he have some inkling of what probably happened here, I wonder? I do wonder. He seems pretty caught off guard by the escalation of this scenario. I don't think he really, for whatever reason, whether he didn't know him or he thought he wasn't a threat, I don't think he saw that there was a potential serial killer in this building. I really don't. So Leatherface, yeah, recovers the chainsaw. Poor Melody is traumatized under the bed. And apparently this is the same make and model. Like, there's some good continuity from the original film. And also, apparently, no chainsaw, if you left gas in it, would still be operational all these years later if you just stored it somewhere. It would corrode the motor. I believe, because I noticed this, I was watching it with the, uh, let's see, does he get it? I don't know if he gets it going now. It takes a while. So there's uh, there's a scene later on where she hears him like tinkering with screws and pouring stuff. Yes. That I think is when he gets the, the, like he has to add gasoline to it. I think you're right. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I, he doesn't, uh, when he battles Richter, it's not with the chainsaw because the chainsaw is not working. But he does fuck the shit out of Richter here. There's an amazing yeah. compound fracture of the leg. Uh, but Richter, you know, he gives him a hard time and then his, his leg just gets bent back 90 degrees. Ah! Yeah, it's painful. 
Oof. God, it's, I'll tell you, that's someone who has the emotional reaction that I do to compound fractures. The slasher genre is particularly hard on me. Yeah, eye trauma and compound fractures. I mean, yeah. if, you, if that doesn't affect you, you're, you're ice. You have ice in your blood. Nope. All right, so Richter's had his neck impaled on a piece of broken glass. He, he starts bleeding out on the floor, but he has the presence of mind to remember those fucking bus keys and yeah. throw them under the bed to our hiding melody. And then, yes, the blows start raining down on his head, which is always classic in these movies. Like to see some serious oh head getting caved in stuff. It's effective. Jesus. It's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fucked up. And she witnesses the whole thing. Leatherface walks out, but she does have the keys now, so there's hope. I just, I love that stained glass window and the house, and like, it's got a, a great ambiance. And so Sally Hardesty shows up and finds the sheriff's van out in that field. It's night now. And this is where, yeah, we get some, the pace starts to slow. A lot of sequences moving forward are going to be not that compelling. I, I think it's, it's, it's safe to say, even though this is shot well, it's safe to say that we've, we've passed the apex of the film except for the incredible high point that the bus massacre represents. But you're right. I, I don't know in this scene where she's sort of approaching the sheriff's van. It looks like there are thunderstorms in the back or lightning storms in the background. I mean, it's yeah. There's something to like capturing that Texas vibe. I wish Rich was here. I mean, I spent a, mm-hmm. a fair amount of time in Texas at this point in my life. But uh, Rich, having grown up there, I feel like would really be able to inform us if that. Well, hopefully by the time we. Uh you know, do our next podcast with him, he will have seen the movie and at least we can get, you know, his review and, and his vibe on this. Cause yeah, it's, I mean, it, it does feel like, you know, you, somebody who's, who's been around and has said, Ooh, these are the things you're going to, you're going to make a horror movie in Texas. I'm going to have a field of dead sunflowers. It's great. Yeah. And, and we have a wonderful tableau, which is, you know, very TCM. Uh, the 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 faceless Alice Creed character has been propped up, and it does you know kind of evoke the various living dead family members in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre pantheon, where uh, you know like the woman with the chainsaw in Texas Chainsaw Two, the fat woman, right? You mm-hmm. know, like uh, you're in a position of honor somehow even as a corpse well that's i mean that's a, that's a trope of the genre right i mean from mm-hmm. halloween to hell house to texas chainsaw like it's the the friday the 13th where he pins crispin glover up with the the damn fancy corkscrew but these uh, are reverential like in this series if he does that it's reverential like i don't think he does it with you know just the random victims they're all meat well, in the texas well, chainsaw series Wait, sorry, you don't think this is, I mean, the, the posing of Alice Creech was sort of reverential? Oh, I, I think it is completely it, uh, yeah. reverential. Like, that's the difference. Like, you don't pose the victims, you pose the family. Well, yes, but if you think about the way that Michael Myers poses Linda in front of the, the gravestone, for instance. I don't know, I, th- I, think, I just think there's a lot of it. Again, the, the motivations and the context around it is different, but that 
that delicate posing of the bodies is it's both troubling. Like it, it reflects something troubling in the psychology of the killer, uh, but also creates just really haunting fucked up imagery. Mm-hmm. There is no context in hell house, unfortunately, but it's still a creepy image. Well, yeah, I haven't seen that in a while, but I mean, I, I think that the distinction is worth drawing in terms of slasher movies that, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, if you get posed, it's a sign of respect. That's what I'm saying. I hate you, John. <laughs> <laughs> well established, Vic. Well established. Okay. So Mel is creeping out of the room now. And with the subtitles on, what you see is screws turning, unscrewing, pouring. And I think that that is actually him getting the chainsaw working again. So, yes, uh, I don't. I'm just saying the, the continuity of the chainsaw not working. Oh, but this is a great shot, too, where she jumps uh, down to the stairs and he finds Leatherface he waiting th- for her at the top. He throws this hammer and it just like takes her out. She goes flying. It's very kinetic. It's very effective. But yeah, he like now he, he put that stuff in the chainsaw. And now that she's kind of in, at his mercy, apparently they'll he gets it going, you know, he, he pulls that yeah. uh, cord a few times and it's, it's back in service. And yeah, I, I do think they at least put some calories into selling us on. Sure. It didn't work right away, but he got it going again. Yeah. You know, that's what's well put. They put a few calories into it. <laughs> and now we have a, what feels like both a good and a weirdly familiar set piece of her being under the floorboards. And the, it's like, as soon as she's down there, you're like, I can't wait for the chainsaw to come down. Yeah. I don't, I don't love this sequence except that they go complete shark with it and the blade yes. ends up chasing her and it's super cool the way it looks. Yeah. Much better than that goddamn Freddy glove in new nightmare. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to do this for the next, like, three weeks while we go the next three recordings while we get through all this shit. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I agree with that. Even though, I mean, the, what I would say is that that is both, it, it's a cool visual. It's like an inverted shark fin. Exactly. But it's also totally illogical. <laughs> like, yeah. Not how chase someone. It's just cinematic as hell. Like exactly. It, it's it, cinematic. Yeah. He he's cutting through the floor for like twenty five feet, and then he cuts through a sewage pipe and and dumps shit on her head, like just because. Yeah. S- stupid Gen Z people. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, it wasn't enough to to please the haters of woke Gen Z people that she literally gets a pipe full of shit dumped on her head. But well, does he? So because he stops there, like, does he think that sh- that the pipe was her skull? I'm not sure. I mean, it all happens pretty fast. Yeah. He can't see what's happening, I don't think. I like that that's like Leatherface in court. He's like, listen, Your Honor, it all happened pretty fast, okay? <laughs> the dumbest bus driver in history. They've escaped. Uh, uh, her sister's helped her escape. They're back onto the, the bus. She's given the bus driver the keys. They should be home free. And this is where I get back to what I was saying about isolation and just how hard it is to isolate characters believably in a movie because they are they are free to go. Yep. It's raining, but the streets are clear. There's a great shot of Leatherface in the alleyway uh, holding the chainsaw. I remember that from the trailer. 
And then I I don't know what happens here, John. What what do you think? Why does the bus stop? Well, you're talking about audio. I'm pretty sure we we hear him sawing the back of the car, like uh, the bus. Like I think he saws. He does damage to the, the back of the the bus. It all happens really quickly. He like the driver goes out to check on it, and he instantly decapitates the driver. But the driver but like, never had a sense of what was really going on. But that's what I mean. Like if if only like the two people on the bus who understood what was at stake, or even Catherine, who at least knows that Dante is dead. Mm-hmm. Like if a, one person had just said, "Don't stop for anything ever." Right. Like there's a there's a murderer out there or something. Right. Nobody says that, and so the driver goes out, and now there's you know what I mean. Like it, I don't know, it just felt sort of gotcha. Bad. So everybody pulls up their phone to record this guy, which is clearly satire. It's not super believable or realistic. And the guy says, "Try anything, and you're canceled, bro." This is fucking satire. You know, yeah. like this is not woke. This is making fun of these people. I don't. I just. The haters are clueless on this. It, it, it's commentary, social commentary. Anyway, so this is the best scene in the movie. Leatherface just wading into these hapless Gen Z people. And this is like somebody put in a review like you, I think it was bloody disgusting. You have to be cheering for this. And, you know, I'm, I'm, we should be technically ambivalent about it because it's horrible. It's carnage. Like, we, don't, we shouldn't be cheering for people getting massacred. But the movie, they've set this up, again, with the satire so that you can pump your fist and laugh and enjoy this as, like, the quintessence of what didn't we get from previous Texas Chainsaw movies. And it would be something like this, where Leatherface just mows through, you know, 25 people in an enclosed space. It's servicing the genre and delivering on the concept of Leatherface, a man with a chainsaw, in a way that no other Texas Chainsaw movie has ever done. And they have to somewhat make you not hate yourself for enjoying it. So these people are dipshits. But, (laughs) you know, like... But it's fucking like adrenaline packed and yeah, it's disturbing. Like it it can be both disturbing and you're like, this is the, this is why I watch horror movies at the same time. And I think the sequence hits it out of the park because it gets that balance right. I, there are two shots, even more than the actual carnage, which is impressively filmed. But the the hands, the people pressing on the windows as the windows are covered in blood. I mean, it's like something out of Dawn of the Dead. It's really impressive. Yes. And then uh, Melody and Lila have escaped into the bathroom, and the amount of blood that comes pouring under the door as they're in there is just is is horrifying. Like those things, I feel like communicate the horror as much as Catherine getting cut in half as she tries to escape, which is what just happened. And it's also classic. Her, yeah, her entrails hanging over the windowsill are are pretty impressive. Yeah, like, I, I don't know how you look at this sequence and not say it's somewhat landmark thus far in slasher movie history. I agree. You know what it is, John? This is the scene that is missing from Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is what, you, when, you, when you talk about Jason, like, the possibilities of Jason Takes Manhattan, right. this is what you 
this is what you were thinking of on the boat uh, that never that never came to pass. But Jason yeah. in a fucking New York City nightclub with a machete, just just chopping through people. Oh, um, oh, yeah, I see where you're going. I was I was first thinking of the boat like a super enclosed uh, space. Oh, but yeah, no, 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 no of course. There's some, there is because these are city people in like neon lit space, like drinking and partying. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think the sequence would have played completely differently if it was Leatherface walking into a a bar, all a near dark yeah. or something. You know, I, I think the bus the bus is kind of genius because they're fish in a barrel. You know. Oh yeah, no. I just, I just mean the the level of carnage, like you yeah. were saying. That, that mm-hmm. is something that I think, as a slasher fan, it's really hard to pinpoint something comparable. Say what you want about everything else about this movie. If you were just like, what is the best Leatherface rampage of all time? I defy you to give me a a better sequence than that. John, what is what is the best slasher rampage of all time? Well, that's certainly Can an interesting up- question. I mean, I, I, yeah, and I don't, I don't have a, a, a list prop to go in my head, but this would have to be top five, I think, and, and maybe even higher than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, nothing, if there was something definitively better, I would think it would already, it would come to mind when I watched the sequence, right? Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't. So yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anything obvious. Now, unfortunately, we're back to preposterous ways to keep our characters from leaving. And right. in this instance, they've run into Sally Hardesty, who has locked them in her car while she goes to kill Leatherface because I guess she thinks he wants to kill them. It, she's using them as bait. Yeah. And this is where the movie really starts to fall apart. Because yeah. we're we're supposed to be really on board with this confrontation, and it's extremely underwhelming. Like she goes into the house because Leatherface has returned to his home, and you know he's he's in a quiet period, and they probably could have just driven off and left the three of them, yeah. like the two sisters and her. Cause he's, you know, he's dropped this saw and he's, you know, just sitting reflectively and she confronts him and expects him to like, give her some kind of acknowledgement of who she is, which I don't know why, I guess she doesn't really know anything about him or, you know, like how simple his mind might be, but uh, she doesn't get what she wants, basically, you know, and none of us as audience members are surprised that he doesn't acknowledge the people that he killed 40 some years ago, or that she is the sole survivor of that experience. She wants him to say that she knows who she is. And to the surprise of no one, he just picks up the chainsaw. And it is kind of weird, like they don't fight right away i think he just kind of like leaves (laughs) so yeah like none of this really works for me although i like like psychologically like there's something sort of compelling about the idea that she's been fixated on him for the last 40 years and he just has no idea who she is right i i totally understand that that's cool as a concept that like she hasn't stopped thinking about him and for him, you know, it's nothing, 
But A, why would that be so surprising to her? And B, it's certainly not surprising to us. So it doesn't totally work at all. No. And, well, and then why, if he doesn't know who she is, why does he leave her? Yeah. He's weirdly passive in that sequence also. And then so she, she f- comes back out on the street and starts shooting at him then. And yeah, it, it, it just kind of, it, it doesn't work. And it feels like maybe screenwriters writing themselves in the corners and not knowing how to transition to the scene they need, which is, you know, him attacking the girls in the car and what happens to Sally when she finally has a confrontation to him, with him. And John, I'm going to say this. I know this is going to piss you off, but I'm still going to say it. Of all the instances of this, especially as we keep like rehashing our nostalgia for these, these movies and these characters, I still say that the moment in H2O <laughs> when, when Lori decides that she's going to stay and face Michael is the most meaningful. It's the, it's the most like visceral. It's the most where you're like, yeah, like fucking get him, you know? I, I get it. I think you would have to explain a little more of the context, but I, I vaguely remember that like the beat that like she could just leave, but yeah. at this point, like she's going to confront the demon that's, that's bro- ruined her life. I, I, yeah. I understand. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's that doesn't work as well in the David Gordon green Halloween. It doesn't work very well in this. We've just seen her get impaled on his chainsaw. I mean, she's been, she's, her confrontation with him lasted five minutes. Right. I mean, and she so. does return later, but like at this point, it's it's kind of comical how ineffectual she was, which was one of the sort of uh, interpretations of this movie is that it's just a middle finger to elderly Laurie Strode in Halloween 2018 and sort of laughing at the concept that the, this you know elderly final girl should come back and 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 save the day or you know be uh, super meaningful and that this movie is is commenting on that directly by uh, Sally being summarily defeated and thrown into the trash. What do you think about that? I guess I agree. I mean, I think that certainly conceptually in the in the David Gordon Green films she had prepared for this her whole life you know what i mean like she had her mm-hmm. her house like she had booby traps and all this kind of stuff like Sally Hardesty just shows up with a couple of guns and runs out of bullets she had one more one more bullet in that shotgun no i uh, think the movie i i will posit i will posit that the movie is suggesting that she's just as obsessed with the past as Laurie Strode in Halloween yeah. 2018. I don't see a lack of commitment or preparation from this character. I think the movie is just inherently, I don't know if sneering is the word, but, you know, dismissing that dynamic or, you know, m- at least having fun with it, that this yeah. woman would still be a viable antagonist for him. We did, we did have an interesting beat. So, uh, again, another trope of the the genre, I think, is the character attempting to run down the killer and then crashing their car. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like that's happened a couple of times. And Melody is now pinned in the car. She's got something sort of st- stuck through her leg. 
Which is and normally told- fatal, but not in this case. No. Uh, only if it hits the femoral artery, I believe. Right. That, that but, is true. But, so she sends her, her sister off uh, and says, basically sacrificing herself, says, he's going to kill me, you run. And, and then tells her sister, you're the strongest person I've ever known. You, you've never needed me, basically. Which is supposed to be some kind of closure on the conflict in their relationship. Doesn't really work. Again, it's the, the, this all is supposed to tie into this stuff with her being a survivor of the school shooting and yada yada. She comes back with the gun that uh, Richter had, and mm-hmm. but it doesn't. But it doesn't work. It doesn't be bullets or something. I don't know. And so she saves her sister, but then Leatherface chases her, and just when she's about to die. Sally Hardesty shoots Leatherface, so he's now taken, I think, two or three shots from a shotgun. Don't, and, don't even bother counting damage yeah, to Leatherface at this point. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, but then, once again, as, as it just drives me bananas in this movie. It's like, okay, Leatherface ran away. You can all get in some kind of vehicle and, and leave or something. Uh, and Sally Hardesty's like, don't run. He'll haunt you forever. And she loads the shotgun and hands it off to uh, Lila. Yeah, that's supposed to be her character arc, right? What's that? This is the completion of her character arc. That the completion of her character arc is that she's taking it into her own hands. She's not just going to run away and live with it. She's going to exercise her demon directly because she doesn't want to be Sally. She doesn't want to be worried about this guy you know, for the rest of her life, looking over her shoulder. And instead, like, she's just going to put him to rest. I think that's clearly what they're, what they're saying is happening. I, I mean, so, yes, like I, like, I get that. It just doesn't work. No. Like, it's still dumb. It's another instance where the characters are completely able to flee, and the screenplay has to contrive a way for them uh, to continue putting themselves in harm's way. Right, right. And that sort of, you know, standing up to it, stopping running kind of a thing is pretty yeah. popular in well, this. And on on genre. top of which, John, I'll give you this. They just did that when her sister told her to run and then she went and got a gun and came back. Yeah. Yeah, it's also like a little queasy that she's the school shooting uh survivor and like this big part of it is embrace the gun. You know, she looks at the gun, it's lying there, and then she's like, I'll pick it up. Yeah. I'll get my no, strength. The the school shooting thing, like, I, this is this is sort of what we were talking about, I think, in, like, Terrifier, right? Is that could have been a really interesting character backstory, and she could have been a really compelling character. Especially, I mean, it's a little tough because it's the Texas chainsaw massacre. And so the film doesn't have much of a relationship with guns, but uh, there, there definitely was like room to make something compelling out of this character and the arc, but they're not really interested in that. Like they really use it just as sort of shorthand. Yeah. Like one thing, this movie does not even attempt to comment on, you know, lampooning or being serious about is, is gun culture. That's for sure. Like it, it has no uh, perspective on it. It, it, it. If anything, yeah, it's just kind of a little uncomfortable uh, yeah. how it handles that. But 
Elsie Fisher is she's well known for a movie. I think it's called Fourth Grade, uh, Fourth or Fifth Grade. I haven't seen it, but Eighth Grade, Eighth Grade, Eighth Grade. Okay, yeah, and the Bo, the Bo Burnham film. Yeah, she. Oh, you know more about it than I. I do, but she's popped up on Barry and a few other things recently. That of course the, the great HBO show, and I kind of have a feeling you know we're going to be seeing a lot more of her. I think she's. Uh, talented and is in sort of an awkward phase right now, but it also kind of behooves her because she doesn't fit into a classical leading woman paradigm right now. I like there's a beat. So she, she and Leatherface are wrestling. She loses the gun. She starts scrambling for the gun and Leatherface tosses the chainsaw on the ground like along the ground and it sort of slices her leg. And so she winds up falling. So I just thought another cool way for Leatherface to use the chainsaw. Yeah. Yeah. There are some inventive things that he does even in this sequence, which is kind of de rigueur slasher movie act three stuff in a lot of ways, but there are some good beats here. I mean, it's still a cut above. So now she's got the gun. She saves Melody, who just saved her. Uh, she shoots him twice. She runs out of bullets again because shotguns yeah. have a choke, which means you can only put three shots in them. Mm-hmm. And so then Melody shows up with the chainsaw and t- takes a very weird swipe under his chin. It's like an uppercut with yeah. the chainsaw. But still, like just not if you were going for a kill shot with a chainsaw. It's just not how I would swing it. Well, yeah, it does kind of help sell the admittedly ridiculous fact that Leatherface is not down for the count, despite no. the way the sequence, uh, you know, in, in classic genre fashion, tries to sell us that he's, and it looks great uh, as he sinks into the water, uh, yeah. you know, and this is his his denouement. But um, it it really is just like the movie diverges from reality entirely uh, after this, but it's pretty visceral and pretty uh, effective. I mean, I enjoy the fact that the, the film centers on the relationship between these sisters. I find mm-hmm. their relationship less compelling than the sisters in Fear Street 78, but <laughs> at least it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different dynamic than we often see in slasher films. So now we're at dawn, and uh, Elsie picks up the photo and the hat of Sally Hardesty. Some have posited that this is setting up the sequel, that she's taking the mantle, which makes sense given the way the film ends. And so they get into their autonomous vehicle. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Tesla? Uh, yeah, I, they're not super. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's sort of futuristic in an undefined way, but I, I for one appreciate that this is certainly an apt uh, juxtaposition of 2022 and 1974. That, Absolutely. Yeah, it it really works for me. So yes, Leatherface is alive and breaks out the window and in an extraordinarily effective shot, in my opinion, decapitates Melody as uh, Lila is, is being driven away by her 
AI powered vehicle. And we get like a very, very, very similar shot of Leatherface swinging his chainsaw in, in triumph as she howls in emotional agony as uh, he recedes in the background. Yeah. I mean, that's a dude. That's a, that is a tight fucking, you know, like you said, 84 minutes, man. It's, it's, uh, it, it, sets up what it wants to do and it does it. And I think there's a couple of standout sequences. There's a couple of truly iconic shots. I think there's enough character work that, you know, I I enjoy that part of it and the performances are good enough. I think the, the stuff with the deed is just, I, I don't know. It just, it's in a movie with life and death stakes. We're going to spend that much time talking about property uh, the, the, that starts to feel a little silly, but I do think for me, what it really gets back to is that notion of a, the, the, the clash between generations and mm-hmm. the way that the, the horror that, that springs from that, uh, from, from the previous generation, not letting go, uh, not willing to just give up and let, the next generation take over. I mean, that's what the first Texas Chainsaw was was really sort of fundamentally about. Yeah, the, the just the fundamental disconnect between those people, and that they could not they could not possibly overcome that, and and that people are quote unquote left behind by progress, and they're desperate and, and vulnerable in their way, even if they are clinically insane. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that if you just said, dude, this is what's most like special and unique about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, minus the, the family and the, you know, skeleton furniture, there's a few things that were jettisoned, but like the fundamental heart of this series and the thematic interest of it, how do you say, I'm not just going to make another, like it could have happened at any time or it's a prequel or it's set in the eighties or whatever. Like I'm going to do something that tries to reconcile these things with our times. I think they nailed it. I, I think this feels like a film that takes all of that into account and makes it relevant and explores ideas and conflicts that are extraordinarily on our minds. And and not only that, it, it says like, all right, like technically visually in terms of effects and visceral impact on the audience, what, what can we do that will stand out that will, you know, be in the pantheon that will transcend what we've seen before, like in Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, whoo, there's some shit in that movie that, you know, that's a high bar to clear as far as like just visceral, gruesome impact and the shock of it. I think this movie, like, yeah, it fails on three or four things that are fairly significant. The, the deed thing. Sure. Are we really going to obsess in 10 years about the deed when we got the bus massacre? I don't think so because 
so many movies in this genre are flawed and uneven and uh, have their longours and their slow points and, and things like that. I, I immediately, not to you know toot my own horn or something, but when I saw this movie, I'm like, I see a, a contribution not only to the slasher genre, but to this franchise in this film. And yeah, when I saw it, second or third time it's warts are more apparent but i i think that it's a ballsy standout iconic unsettling funny movie that that pretty much effectively splits the difference between the first texas chainsaw movie and the second one through a modern lens because the second one is all about the fucking you know, dark comedy and the satire and, and, and stuff like that. So I think it was well within the purview of this franchise to kind of go back to that. And I, I think it did in a, in a pretty, a way that's so subtle that a lot of people, it just went over their heads. It's definitely for me, it's definitely more than teeing up a bunch of, teenagers or 20 somethings to get killed by a galoot. And that's, that's like, that's what I look for when I'm looking at these, at these slasher films, this has a lot more to say than that. And it, and again, it, even if it doesn't work, you know, they, they put some effort into the characters and the backstory. And like I said, the, the generational divide and the cultural divide uh, the, all that stuff really pays off and yeah, there's, there's some flaws. There's some warts. Look, it's like, I keep saying it's fucking hard to keep people in one place for a horror film. It's really hard and technology makes it harder and harder. And so I think trying to do it in 2022 is a hell of a lot harder than it was in 1974. So I, as much as that stuff, you always look at it and kind of roll your eyes I'm also as a just as a from a, a storytelling perspective, I'm sympathetic. It's fucking hard. You got to come up with something. Why don't they just get in the car and drive away? That'll always be there, but it's for me. It's vastly uh, uh, overshadowed by the things that this film does well, like the bus scene. I mean, really everything to do with Leatherface. Yes. You know the 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 chainsaw, the fight scenes, the the violence. Uh, the just the individual shots, Leatherface in the in the sunflower field, silhouetted against the the stained glass in the orphanage. Like, dude, that shit is that's not easy to do. Lots of people try to do that, and not many do it as successfully as this film does. This is a this is a this is a solid food, uh, solid slasher film. Absolutely, yeah. None of its flaws or sins or missteps or mistakes took me out of the movie to the degree that it would undermine the power of all of those high points. And that's what really matters. You know, like there, there are movies that, you know, you just, you, you stop taking it seriously and something out of context might be cool, but in the context of the story, it just like, you've already checked out or, you know, you just don't care or whatever. None of the flaws of this movie diminish the power of its individual gem sequences. And, you know, I could think about, well, could they have been even more powerful if, 
its weaknesses were were strengths. Sure, but this movie, you know, it's 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 ambitious in some ways, but it kind of it knows what it is, and it's 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 not something that like would be the shining or the exorcist or, you know, like we'd just be devastatingly emotionally involved in it. Or, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not playing in that ballpark. So I don't even feel like, Oh, you know, it's potential was so great. If it hadn't blown it here and there, like we would all think it's genius. I don't even think that. It, it 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 is what it is and i think you should just appreciate it for that you know like it 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 isn't like so close to something that could have been better i think it absolutely does what it wanted to do and if it had been tighter the screws had been tighter and certain beats had been uh better thought out and executed how much would it have elevated it somewhat, but I just, <laughs> I don't see it as, as this, you know, disappointment that if only it had, you know, been better written, um, we would have had something more. I, I think it's 90% of what it could have been. And it, you're just getting hung up on minor shit. If the, it's weaknesses bother you. You know, with that said, I don't think it was ever going to be a fucking classic, but I still really appreciate what it brings to the table. Coming on the heels of all the Texas Chainsaw movies that, that people have made over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, it's really impressive. Like, it's really impressive that they were able to make something this successful. It's better. It's goddamn better than the David Gordon Green Halloween film. I agree. I totally agree. And you and I are somewhat on an island in that opinion. We, we are. Um, yeah. But I, I completely agree. I've even you know heard people say that Halloween Kills is better than this. And fuck no. It's so fucking... Like, there's, I don't find anything really truly cringy about this movie. I don't. I'm not embarrassed by any of it. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's some things that are clunky, but there, as we, as we know, cause we, we did a long podcast about it. There are things in Halloween kills that I just think are schlock, you know, just terrible, terrible. Yep. It looks good. It, they put more money into it. Well, Vic, this has been a pleasure, man. Absolutely. Hey, listen, if you enjoyed listening to this, imagine how much you're going to fucking love listening to us do this plus another hour talking about the four best slasher films ever made guys. It's going to be really exciting. Yeah. We're going to, you know, the microscopes and the magnifying glasses will be out. The scalpels. (laughs) We're going to be pulling the organs out and weighing them in a little, (laughs) the, the, the scales, you know, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The loving autopsies are ahead of you. So uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, we will be back in your ears soon. Until then, adios. Adios.